I'm uh, very thankful for the chance to speak today. Thank you to the pastoral staff for the opportunity. I just want to urge us to remember to keep uh, Wes particularly in prayer and Cindy too. And um, I think it would be a really frustrating thing to be a pastor and to be sick at this time of year. Um, the closest we ever came was that Jill went into labor with our first the day before Easter. And so I had to miss Easter Sunday. I thought I would, but the way the story wound up is that Jill's labor ended up taking four days, and Grace was not born until Wednesday. So I went to church. Jill was like, you may as well go. We're going to be here a while. So I got to Easter, but I, missing a, the kind of high and holy season is a hard thing for a pastor. So let's keep Wes uh, in prayer. I hope uh, I have something to lend to our thinking about uh, the season and particularly the character of John the Baptist. Um, When we heard from John the Baptist last week, when Mike Walters preached, he preached on the text from Matthew 3, which is at the very beginning of John's ministry. And uh, the picture we have of him there is a very intense leader. If you remember, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Don't tell me it's enough that you're Abraham's children. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He said, even now the axe is at the root of the trees, and if you don't bear good fruit, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this was John as we saw him last week, eight chapters ago, such clarity of vision. But if we look at him now, eight chapters and a couple of years later, we see a different John. He's in prison because he had the courage to tell Herod that he shouldn't be sleeping with his sister-in-law, which is actually very good advice, and it's probably obvious to most of us. But as you know, some people don't want your good advice. And uh, when that person who doesn't want your good advice is a brutal dictator, you might just find yourself in prison for a couple of years. And that's, that's where he is. And so he's been in jail for this time, and there is this heart-wrenching scene. If, if you're the kind of imaginative type to just sort of think through what it must have looked like. This once proud prophet, so sure of himself, so very aware of his calling, is now wondering, have I thrown my life away? Like, am I here for nothing? (laughs) Have I been a fool? And so he calls his disciples, and he says, go find Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come, or are we supposed to wait for someone else? A few things to say about John. First, we might wonder why he doubts now. After all, it's, it's not like he had a mountain of evidence to go on when he first called Jesus, first acknowledged who Jesus was. He's out in the wilderness talking about all that he's talking about, and then he sees Jesus and says, that's the guy. But it's not like he had, you know, a whole sort of theological rationale. There weren't authors who had sort of said, this is what Jesus will look like when he comes. He just knows it in the moment, but somehow he just doesn't know it anymore. Why? I mean, the first and most obvious answer is that he's been in jail for a couple of years. And jail has a way of changing your mind about things. I uh, I always think jail is kind of an interesting idea when we think about in our culture, what do we need to do with people who have done something really wrong? And we say, essentially, you need to be locked up for a while. And that's partially to keep us safe, right, those who have not done those things. It's partially to punish those who have done it and to deter other people from doing it. But the main reason, at least, we say that we do it is that it rehabilitates. It gives someone a chance to think about what they've done 
and choose to live differently. It gives them the structure they need to sort of plan a different way of living. In a way, uh, you, if you know me well, you know I'm kind of into monastic spirituality. In a way, jail is not that different than a monastery. Your life is sort of marked out for you. You do a certain thing at a certain time, and the goal is character transformation, that you will come out looking different than when you came in. Of course, the difference is that you choose to become a monk. You do not choose to go to jail in the same way. Uh, as in a brief aside, my dad uh, was a municipal judge. He's retired now. And uh, he, of course, sent people to jail, people that I knew sometimes, including some of my co-workers when I would work summer jobs. Uh, that was always an interesting conversation. I remember one particularly, I was pumping gas on the New Jersey Turnpike, and the guy next to me said, you're Judge Jordan's son? <laughs> I said, Yeah. Where is this going? He's like, your dad put me in jail. <laughs> I said, oh, no. Like, I'm thinking, what is it? And then the next thing he said, and this was a real relief, he said, I deserved it. He's like, I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> and then he said this. He said, your dad is a hard man, but he's fair. And I thought, that's, I mean, that's all a kid can ask for from his dad. And I said, I know. I know he's a hard man, but he's fair. Like, he used to send me to his room. He sent you to a room of sorts, you know. <laughs> I was thankful that jail had done its work with my, with my co-worker, right? And that he had come out and sort of had reflected on what he had done and he had made amends not to do it. So it wouldn't surprise us if John had been somewhat transformed by the jail experience. But, but I think there's something else, right, that, that could have happened here. And that is that Jesus' ministry might not look exactly like what John had expected. I hope that doesn't sound sacrilegious to say, but John is not God. John is a prophet who is speaking a message that has come to him from God, but he no doubt doesn't fully understand what he's talking about when he says things like he's going to take his winnowing fork and separate for the wheat from the chaff and throw the chaff into fire. In fact, John talks about fire so much that you might think he expects literal fire to be there or some sort of metaphorical fire that looks different than what Jesus is actually doing. He says, I'm baptizing you with water. One's coming after me that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And ever since John has said that and subsequently gone to prison, here is what Jesus has been doing. He has been hanging out in the wilderness, healing people, preaching a very long message that takes three chapters in the book of Matthew, having theological arguments with the Pharisees, and hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And so it's totally possible that John the Baptist looks at this and says, I'm not sure exactly what this is. It looks wonderful. It looks nice. But it doesn't look like fire. It doesn't look like the axe at the root of the trees. So it's totally normal, I think, that John might doubt. I think I would doubt too. Don't we doubt when what we expect God to do is not what God does? So I think it's somewhat normal that God would doubt. Now, I'm going to say something here, and I don't want to sound overly pious about it, okay? So just be aware, I might sound overly pious here, but I'll explain myself. I'm impressed with what John does when he doubts. He takes his doubts to Jesus. Now, again, I think you're very dangerously close to, like, circular reasoning here. <laughs> when you say, like, oh, if you're doubting Jesus, just go talk to him. So that's not exactly what I'm saying. But look at what John knew about Jesus. John is not sure right now that Jesus is God. He is not sure that Jesus is the Messiah. But he does know he's a trustworthy human being who will be honest with him and tell him the truth about who he is. 
Think about how incredible it is that John is doubting Jesus' ministry and turns to Jesus for confirmation about who he is. Just so you know, this is not what happens to me when people doubt my ministry, right? Like in my job as dean of the chapel at Houghton, right? Like I know that, you know, you're sort of a public person, you do public things, and people might agree or they might disagree with some things you say, right? If you don't think I'm the right dean of the chapel for Houghton, most people don't come to me and say, do you think you're the right dean of the chapel for Houghton? Because you already know what I think, right? But you might be inclined to ask someone else. Do you think Mike Jordan's really the right dean of the chapel for Houghton? And you make the decision entirely dependent of me about what you think. Somehow John does not do this. And what he knows about Jesus, he leans on in the moment. I don't know how he's the Messiah, but I know he's good. And so I'll ask him, because I know he'll be honest with me. There's something so very Christian about this. I know that Jesus takes pains at the end to sort of say, John the Baptist is great, but not like kingdom of God great. But there's something very Christian about what he does here. This is not generally how Christians solve conflicts, by talking to the people they have conflicts with. It's one of the things I really appreciate about our pastor, actually, if I can pump Wes up a little bit. There have been times when I've disagreed with something Wes has said, It usually jars me because there's not that many things I disagree with that Wes has said, but it usually jars me. And then I think, I could just talk to Wes about this. He'd probably listen. And you know what he does. And sometimes he apologizes. And sometimes he says, well, I still disagree with you, but let's find a way through together. That's remarkable. And that kind of stuff is what John sets, uh, sets the way for here. Would that that happened more in the body of Christ. This sort of sense of, I don't, I don't, agree with you about everything, but I don't doubt that you're good. That's a very helpful place um, to start from. And it's not the way that all pastors, or all the way, the way all churches treat their leaders. It's not all the way leaders treat their churches either. I've been at plenty of pastors' meetings where they've been complaining about their congregants, and I think, have you spoken to their congregants about this? Like, they might be God's people for you right now that you can talk to without fear. So, this is a very moving thing to me, how John trusts Jesus and asks him are you the one? And knows that Jesus will answer him honestly. Now, here's, of course, the interesting thing that Jesus does when he answers. He doesn't actually answer the question that was asked. This is what Jesus does time and again in the Gospels, right? People ask him questions. He answers you with something that reveals, you should have asked this other question, actually, right? He pushes the listener, the asker, a little deeper. And so he says this. This is really interesting. Go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And this is the kind of stuff that should reassure John. Like if what John is worried about is, is Jesus sufficiently turning the world upside down? I mean, he seems like a wonderful guy, but this doesn't sound like the fire and the axe at the root of the trees. The stuff that Jesus is saying should reassure John, yes, Jesus really is apocalyptic. Jesus really is uh, bringing in something new. He really is inaugurating a new way of being, a new mode of the kingdom of God, as it were. But he doesn't come right out and say, I am the Messiah. Why? Well, I mean, it could be that he doesn't quite want to play that card yet. There's a way that certainly in the Gospel of Mark, we read that again and again, where Jesus appears to be kind of keeping things quiet because he knows that saying he's the Messiah is going to sort of precipitate 
a series of events he's not ready for yet. But that is not usually the case in the book of Matthew, so it could be that. But, but I think it's more likely that Jesus knows that John the Baptist doesn't need the reassurance he thinks he needs. Instead, he knows that John's heart is oriented rightly. He knows that John wants to do the right thing. All that John needs is to know the truth. And when John knows the truth, he's going to live out of that truth in a way that honors him. So he says, you know, if John's so worried about this, just tell him what you see. Tell him what is. Tell him the things that he can't see because he's in prison right now. And once he sees through your eyes, he'll be able to live with the hope and the joy that comes from knowing me. Let me ask you a question. What do you see? And what do you hear? Because just like John, you don't see everything. And you don't hear everything. We don't think about the question very much. It seems kind of obvious. I mean, I see what's in front of me. I hear what's around me. But what do you see and what do you hear, really? If I tell you this, God's love endures forever. Can you see that? Well, some of you can see it very clearly this morning. You're in the romantic relationship you want to be in, or your kids are happy and healthy, or you're having a great relationship with your parents. Everything is just right. You're getting an A in that class. You really needed to get an A in. You know, everything is right. God's love endures forever. Yes, I see it. Some of you, though, your lenses are a little smudged. Things are a little blurry. A kid is misbehaving. I don't know where I thought that piece up from, right? (laughs) A parent is wearying you. A relationship that should be bringing you life is bringing you stress. I mean, I guess God's love endures forever. When I go to church, when I clean the lenses off a little bit, I can see it. When I squint just right, I can see it. Others of you can hardly see it at all. A child of yours is battling addiction and losing. There's a trauma that happened to you 40 years ago that is still ruling your life. You're experiencing grinding poverty. The medical tests came back and it's bad news. I mean, God's love endures forever is a nice, pious sentiment, but it is not something that you see and hear right now. I I, I can't immediately and instinctually experience it as true and real. Or take, it, take another example. A few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, we had a speaker up at the college chapel uh, who was a Haitian pastor from Brooklyn. And I can't remember her name. Uh, I looked in the archives, couldn't find it. So if, if someone remembers this, let me know. But she preached about Joseph and the dreams that God had given Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament, that is. And she assured the students that God had given them dreams as well. Dreams to succeed in life, dreams to make something of themselves. And it was one of the most fascinating sermons I can remember in terms of the way that students received it. And it almost entirely broke down on urban and suburban and rural kids. Urban kids thought one thing about it, and suburban rural kids thought another thing. The urban kids, mostly poorer, were very enthusiastic about this sermon. Because when you live in urban poverty, 
There are so many voices telling you, you're not going to succeed in life. School is not really worth it. Applying yourself and growing is not really worth it. And this woman was saying, you are worth it to God. God wants you to succeed. God doesn't waste his dreams on people who are not worth it. God put a dream in your heart. Grow, make something of yourself, follow your dreams. The suburban rural kids usually had very different training when hearing something like, follow your dreams. They would usually hear, well, I could follow my dreams, or I could follow God's dream for my life. Right? Anyone can go be a high-powered executive. Anyone can go get a fancy job. But you should find a way to give your life away for something that counts. Anyone can make something of themselves, but not everyone will choose to give themselves away. So some of them were very upset. And really, for the only time in my seven years, I heard uh, the phrase about this chapel, this was unbiblical. Some uh, suburban student said to me, this is not biblical. Now here's the thing. Who is right? Well, they both were in a way, but the way they felt about it almost entirely depended on what they perceived as real, what they saw. The urban kids were exactly right to be drawn into the story and to be reminded, hey, there are powerful voices that want to keep you down. They want to keep you from discovering who you really are. Ignore those voices and grow. Ignore those voices. Flourish. And the suburban rural kids weren't wrong to say, I don't want to just make a living. Like, I want to make it count for God. I do think they were wrong in saying the message wasn't biblical. It was, but they couldn't see it. Right? They, they couldn't see they, they didn't know, for example, that, that thing they said about, uh, you know, anyone can go be a high-powered executive. The urban kids didn't know that. <laughs> for them, that was not their reality. But for these students, it was. So predictably, there was really conflict between these two groups in the way they understood the message. And this conflict we see played out on the wider church, within our nation, around the world. So much of the difficulty in the church and world is not just a crisis of having a good heart, but it is a crisis about what we are seeing and hearing. It's a crisis of imagination. What can we see? What can we hear? So often we paint our enemies as monsters, but that's usually about because it's cathartic for us to imagine that. (laughs) Our conflicts aren't usually because we're battling monsters. Conflicts usually happen between good people because they just can't see what the other side sees. And so they experience different things as real. And sometimes we can't see what the other side sees because it's not in our experience. But here's the tragedy. Sometimes we don't want to see. Sometimes we don't want to see and hear what the other side sees and hears. Because we feel like to just step, even for a moment, into their shoes betrays our tribe. I was trained at a seminary that had as many black students as white students, and both groups had really lovely hearts, most of them. There were exceptions. I'll tell you about them in another sermon, but mostly lovely people, right? But what kept the group separated sometimes were not really theological distinctives. When we would be arguing in class, you would think it was a theological argument, but really it was day-to-day experience masquerading as theological differences. It was day-to-day experience that was difficult, that because we were all theological types, we found theological words to describe but it was mostly experience. My black classmates, mostly from West Philadelphia, right, had a life that was so different from mine, and sometimes it challenged me. When my black friends would talk about what they understood as inequality in the justice system, that's hard for a judge's kid to hear, right? And it was hard to hear that. 
it was hard to acknowledge their experience because I felt like if I even acknowledge your experience for a little bit, I'm not being true to my dad. It's a complicated thing for a 22-year-old to feel. But I eventually had to come to the place where I said to myself, these people are not making this up. I mean, this is their experience. I, mean, I might not entirely agree with the way anybody, one person, tells their story, but it's not like these people are making this up intentionally to make my life harder. So I need to learn to live in this complicated world where I can believe my dad is a person of integrity without believing every piece of American mythology about how our system delivers justice perfectly. I had to admit those folks into my headspace and my heart space and to say, my sight, my hearing are not perfect and complete by themselves. And so I need you. I need you to see and hear, even when you're saying something difficult for me. It's part of what I really treasure about the small group I'm part of in our church. Many times small groups break down around demographic lines, but we, we have ages that span in our group. And sometimes the ages challenge each other because of what we perceive as real. But I need that (laughs) if I'm going to understand what is rather than just what I experience. So much of our division in our world is about the things we see and hear. Our nation is so divided right now, and most of it has to do with input. Whatever side you find yourself on in our great national culture war, you feel a certain rush when you read your side's stuff. And you can reassure yourself that the other side really is monstrous. And yet how rare it is to meet someone who sees, who learns to see and hear from the other side. How rare it is for my friends who are on the left to look honestly at the science around abortion and the viability of human life at an earlier and earlier stage and ask themselves, am I really willing to go down this road all the way? (laughs) Is my tribal loyalty that important? How rare it is for my friends who are on the right to really look honestly at the way we are talking about refugees and immigrants and say, am I sure I want to go all the way down this road with my tribe? There is strength in our tribes, and so we stick with them. But here's the truth. Our tribes are just as much a prison as John the Baptist was in. Our tribes keep us locked within ourselves and our own experience. Our tribes keep us focused on our own little worlds. Our tribes keep us hyper-focused on the threats to our own freedom and well-being. Our tribes keep us focused on what seems to us like the death of the America we knew and loved, whether we're on the right or the left. Our tribes make us believe in a narrative of decline all the time, that things are worse and getting worser for people like us, whoever us happens to be. And yet, at this time of year, Jesus is out there waiting for us to talk to him, and he longs to say to us, narrative of decline, worse and getting worser, let me tell you what I see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Don't tell me how things are worse and getting worser because we have a president that's coarse and cruel, or because Starbucks cups aren't sufficiently Christian. There is healing all around you. There is love all around you. God is moving all around you. If you will open your eyes and see. If you will open your ears and hear. But John 3.19 weighs super heavy on us. This is the judgment. Light has entered the world and people preferred darkness. 
We love the catharsis of seeing ourselves as righteous and others as evil. But in so doing, we've lost sight of what is truly good, that God has come as a man. And because God has come as a human being for the first time, do you hear me? The first time we can see things as they really are. He has breathed his spirit into us. And so we can see. And the results are dazzling and disturbing as you imagine they would be for someone who has been blind for a long time. People look like trees walking around. You hear me. But we can finally see what truly is. We can finally see with clarity. We can finally see ourselves as they are. And we can acknowledge our injured and miserable state. And we can be healed if we want to. I think that's what the text means at the end of the passage. I always felt kind of bad for John the Baptist because it sounds like Jesus is throwing him under the bus saying, the very least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Makes it sound like he isn't saved. But I don't think that's it at all. (laughs) I think he's saying that those in the kingdom of God get to live a life now with God's spirit dwelling within them. And so they can see the truth and know the truth where we can see and hear things as they are. And so we have a leg up on John the Baptist, who wasn't quite there yet, because of his cruel imprisonment and because of his own limitations. Those of us in the kingdom of God can look at things as they are. We we don't have to retreat to our tribes. We don't have to close ourselves off to any kind of evidence. We're free to learn the truth because we have discovered that God is the Lord of the truth, and we can follow him without fear into whatever is true. But John just couldn't see this yet. In a letter that he wrote from prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. One waits and hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things, he said, but the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. John the Baptist couldn't see in prison until Jesus spoke and figuratively opened the door. And just so we could not see until God spoke his final perfect word in Jesus. And the good news this season is that God in Christ has spoken and unlocked the door and allowed us to see things as they truly are and to hear things as they truly are. Let's heed his voice and each other's voices today as we call each other to that holiness. Will you pray with me? God, how thankful we are for the deep love that you have for us, that you show us in your son, Jesus. God, so often we run away from that love or obscure it, find clever reasons why it can't truly be for us, And yet, God, you persistently wait and unlock the door again and again. So we pray again today, God, that you would free us for joyful obedience. That you would show us what truly is. And give us such joy when we see the way that love called us into being and sustains us today that we cannot help but follow you into the light. We ask this through Christ. Amen.